Welcome to this edition of Talking HR with Lori and Lisa, where as always, our goal is to give you a real look at today's HR world through the sharing of experiences, knowledge, and inspiring people practices. I'm your host, Lisa Fuller. And I'm Lisa's co-host, Lori Rolkoff. We got a great podcast session for you today on a timely topic that continues to permeate organizations and appear on HR's lists of top issues, the role of the leader in building and maintaining a respectful workplace culture. Our guest today, Marley Rusin, has been working in this area for as long as I've known her, which is a very long time, isn't it, Marley? Um, (laughs) And uh, workplace dysfunction, conflict, bullying and harassment, poor communication. Marley has seen and heard it all in her many years of practice in this field. She's the author of The Mirror Method, which provides the tools for better communication and conflict resolution. And she's here today to tell us all about that. Hello, Marley. It's great to speak with you again. Hi, welcome. I'm so excited to be here. And we're we're excited to have you, Marley. I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you before today, but I've heard so much about you and really excited to learn from you today. I know you have a legal background and you also wear many hats, trainer, facilitator, author, speaker, mediator, arbitrator, (laughs) lots of different things. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how it formed your philosophy on building respectful, productive and dynamic workplaces? Absolutely. Um, I'd love to. So I practiced labor and relations for um, 15, 20 years. Lori and I were just trying to figure out um, when we first met each other because I was a labor relations lawyer at that time and assisted Lori's organization. So it's, it's been a while. But in the course of assisting predominantly leaders, supervisors, excluded managers, in the course of assisting them as a lawyer, um, I would be involved in workplace conflict at its latest stages. So by the time I would get involved, um, sometimes the dispute or the grievance or the conflict had really been involved, been been, been um, there for six or 12 or 18 months because it takes a long time to get through the system. And what I noticed, it's, it's very interesting, as, as a lawyer, what I noticed is that people were very excited about giving us their binders with lots of tabs, like 10, 15 tabs of all of the evidence that had accrued over so many years. Um, and I started to look through the tabs and I started to call them using my inner voice, of course, the tabs of missed conversations. So yes, incidents had happened. Yes, disputes had arisen. um, And a lot of documentation had accrued, but very few honest, open, direct, and early conversations. So as a result, you would have one issue that would be added to another, that would be added to another, and the conflict that I then was handed was really an accumulation of so many minor or milder conflicts that hadn't been addressed appropriately or in a timely manner. And what I realized is, all egos aside, in many of these situations, my clients didn't really need an arbitrator or a lawyer or formal conflict resolution. There was an over-reliance on formal conflict resolution because of what I saw as an avoidant culture. Uh, Didn't want to have direct conversations, didn't want to talk about conflict, so people just left it. And it festered, and it got worse. And it's because of the passage of time and not doing anything that they were forced into this 
formal arena, not necessarily the most effective arena, but an arena that they were forced to be in because they didn't do enough early enough and um, more informally than where they were now. Awesome. That's a actually that's a really great perspective because I think in HR we certainly have all experienced that where you'd see little incidences maybe put under a rug and then they build up and you think, oh, if only, if only we could have gotten in front front of this. So I love how you've done that. So how does maybe, you know, from your perspective, having conversations earlier. How can that really contribute to the leader's ability to foster a healthier culture? There's a couple of things. I think, first of all, what we allow will continue. So while um, there's an expectation that we do our work properly, there's an expectation that we show up and be team players and that we support others in doing their work properly. If we don't actually set expectations around that and we don't then um, oversee those expectations and ensure those expectations are actually met in practice, then the culture is just whatever we tolerate. And The second principle that's really important to this is, while there's an expectation around this, there is no expectation that people should be able to read the leader's mind. So if a leader wants someone to do something different or wants somebody to behave in a different way, they have a legal responsibility to share that knowledge with the person as soon as possible as respectfully as possible, and then they have a legal requirement to support that person into building new and better and more respectful habits, right? Like I always say, when I practice law, the leader was on the opposite side of the table as their employee. And in the work that I'm doing now, the leader is on the same side of the table, supporting that employee through the necessary changes that need to be made. It's a very different visual and one that will lead the the leader to a far more successful outcome. So when when you talked in your book about the three different responsibilities of the workplace leader in building that Mm -hmm. workplace culture, it was role modeling, respectful decision making, and engaging in respectful accountability. You outlined a six-step program for leaders to follow when dealing with this type of, um, you know, disruption and dysfunction that you were talking about. So when you talk about laying the expectations and then um, making sure that that's clear enough for people to understand, is there anything else that there's that would contribute to a lack of action to address behaviors if besides not making those expectations clear enough? So, I mean, I think from, from the leadership perspective, I'd say there are two systemic reasons why we continue to um, see disrespectful behavior continue, separate from the day-to-day setting of expectations, which is part of respectful accountability. Um, the systemic ones that that really are an impediment to all of us trying to do what we want to do are the following. First, I'm just going to say it, there's a lack of institutional courage. Nobody is surprised by the findings I make in my reports or the conclusions I reach. It's not like they get my report and go, oh, can't believe that this person is disruptive and aggressive and intimate this 
Nobody's surprised. Most of the time, I am simply confirming what virtually everybody in the organization has known for a long period of time and, in fact, has talked about and has complained about. So the people that are still there complain and the people that could do something about it have already left. So it's not like any of this is a surprise, but there's a lack of institutional courage to do something about it. It might be because the person who is engaging in this behavior has a lot of uh, organizational power and influence, right? So who they are might be why the organization is scared to do something. It might be that this person brings a lot of value to the organization. They are the salesperson with the highest sales. They are the university professor who has the, the highest research budget. So from a metrics point of view, they have all this value. The fact that they create disruption and grief and intimidation and cause people to walk on eggshells, oh, you know, that's too bad, but we're not going to touch them because in this other arena, they're, they're, they're so valuable. Or the final reason why there's no courage is because the person who is the most disruptive is also the scariest. And in fact, many leaders are just as scared of this person as the employees who are forced to work with them. So the, the, this person threatens litigation, this person files multiple grievances, this person goes to human rights and, and uh, work safe, goes everywhere, right? Not forum shopping, they, 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 they shop everywhere. Um, not necessarily because they have a valid case, but they're using these processes to intimidate their organization out of doing the right thing in the right way. So whether they have a lot of power or they bring a lot of value or they just scare people, there's this, this lack of institutional courage that's getting in the way regardless. The second systemic trend that I think we really need to be aware of is the fact that we are setting our leaders up for failure in not understanding that leadership is really a profession in its own right. And what I mean by that is leaders need to be trained. You're not born with knowing the mirror method. You're not born with knowing why evidence-based decision-making is so important, why objectivity is a legal requirement when it comes to workplace investigations, why bias can undermine the leader's credibility and ruin a team. You don't, you're not like born, born with that. You don't learn that through Dr. Seuss or through school. And so I think organizations have to mandate and support a leadership training program so that leaders are given the tools to have these conversations, to set these expectations, to hold people accountable, but to do so in a respectful, defensible manner. And so if you don't have the courage and you don't have the training, we shouldn't be surprised that we're getting the outcomes that we're seeing right now, which is this systemic ongoing workplace dysfunction. I think that was really highlighted quite a bit around when the Workers' Compensation Act in 1992 changed how uh, mental disorder uh, is compensated under the act. And, you know, suddenly it was, what is bullying and harassment? Because all these things have been going on for so long. Yes, suddenly there was yes. this real label on it, these behaviors. And there was this focus because there was this financial cost, a true yes. financial co cost to that behavior uh, and not acting on it or stopping it. So in the mere method, I, I really liked your quote, a bad day does not a bully make. Um, how can that help us understand what really constitutes bullying and harassment? 
you know, I, I started to see when WorkSafe made its changes in 2012, I started to see this trend, um, probably out of um, fear, like, you know, not knowing what you should do, not knowing how to navigate through the legislation. And again, probably a lack of training. I started to see that everybody um, was labeling all workplace conflict and dysfunction um, and incidents as bullying and harassment that needed to be formally investigated and formally reported pursuant to the new workers' compensation legislation. And I saw a lot of damage as a result of this one-size-fits-all and very aggressive approach to workplace dysfunction because not everything does need to be formally investigated. And in fact, formal investigations in and of themselves can create a form of dysfunction that we then have to deal with. It creates camps and cliques and uh, hard feelings and mistrust. So while formal investigations are important and they must be um, you know, conducted when there is potential bullying and harassment, they shouldn't be conducted in all situations. So it, it, it led me to wonder what's going on. And I, I realized really that there's some confusion that we are calling all workplace dysfunction bullying and harassment, but that's not the law. So if you understand workplace dysfunction as a spectrum, as a spectrum, there's, there's a range of workplace dysfunction. All of it is dysfunction in the sense that it's affecting the ability of one person or of a team to be able to get the work done or to be able to come to work and feel re respected and feel you know, safe to, to, to do whatever they need to do and say whatever they need to say. So it's, it's dysfunction. There's an absence of functioning. We have got to do something about it for sure, but it's not necessarily bullying and harassment. So on, one, on the one end of the spectrum is the bad day, right? That's the bad day I'm talking about. It's where someone says the wrong thing, does the wrong thing, hurts somebody's feelings, makes a mistake, says an offensive remark, um, and, and shouldn't have, and needs to be held accountable for that, for sure. But it doesn't have to be done formally, and it doesn't have to be done heavy-handed. We, we need to call it out. We need to explain why it's not appropriate. And we need to give them an opportunity to learn from their mistakes and to fix their mistakes and move forward. It's a one-off event. It's mild. It was dysfunctional, but that's not bullying and harassment. It's somebody having a bad day who made a mistake, needs to do something about it, but does not deserve to be called a bully. On the opposite end of the spectrum are the people that attract that label. Now, in contrast to the person I just told you about, the people on the opposite end of the spectrum are one of two different kinds of personas in the workplace. Either they've engaged in just one incident, but it's a doozy. Uh, journalists are asking about it. Um, uh, people are talking about it. It could be a sexual assault. It could be a death threat. It could be a significant um, workplace trans transgression that in and of itself deserves that formal label and deserves that formal at attention. More frequently, the label attracts to an, a long-standing pattern of milder behaviors rude behaviors, inconsideration, insensitivity that have not been managed effectively or we've attempted to and the person has uh, really totally ignored what they've been told not to do. And this is more the straw that broke the camel's back analogy where um, it does deserve the label of bullying and harassment because even if that last incident 
seemed, well, that was just rude. It's really the last of several and it deserves that label. But not all behavior deserves that label. We have to look at the situation in its context. We have to ask how bad was this incident and how frequently has this incident occurred? And then we have to just sort of decide where is it on this spectrum before before we take action and before we start um, attaching very career damaging labels to individuals who are simply making far milder mistakes. I find that really interesting and it certainly resonates from just the various experiences um, over the years, but how has the role of sort of social media and different things, I know just prior to us recording the podcast, we were talking about different things going on in the world and sometimes social media or just public opinion doesn't allow for somebody to make a mistake in today's world because everybody's so sensitive. How do organizations organizations handle that because they've also got now an even external, additional external pressure? It's, um, it's a, a very, very interesting time. So what I um, talk about, I talk about respectful leadership. And I, I contrast that with various other types of leadership, one of which applies to this issue, which is called hasty or reactive leadership. And this is this hasty reactive leadership, I, I do believe has been supported by this social media culture of shoot first, ask questions later, show that you're taking something seriously by acting without investigating, right, by assuming without inquiring. And so when we are a hasty or reactive leader, we succumb, and, and, I, and I empathize, it's, 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 it's not an easy time to lead right now, but we succumb to the social media posts or the journalist at the door who's saying, don't you take this seriously? Don't you take harassment seriously? And, and we do take it seriously, but they want you to prove it by doing something now. I call it Google leadership. They want immediate leadership, immediate action. But immediate isn't necessarily respectful. Often it isn't. And immediate isn't often defensible. So it's neither respectful nor defensible. So how do you navigate this social pressure to show that you take an issue seriously, but at the same time, keep in mind the interests of everybody, including the person who's being accused, but has yet to go through a full, fair and objective process. And the way you do that through respectful leadership is by saying, we do take this seriously. We are going to investigate this. We may put somebody on leave. We may suspend their duties. We may, we may you know, take some interim measures while we are investigating this. And we are going to let you know as soon as we know what the findings and conclusions are from this objective review and, from, and what our recommendations are and what we plan to do. Uh, and we are not going to make any comment until we are first sure that an objective, fair and neutral investigation is done. So that takes institutional courage, that takes leadership courage, because sometimes it's a journalist and sometimes it's a union representative and sometimes it's a lawyer saying, do something now. And what we have to really become, become really comfortable saying is, we are, what we're doing now is investigating fairly. And that's gotta be our answer if we wanna truly have a fair, balanced and respectful workplace culture. And, and does that sort of fit with the idea of ethical leadership and, and role modeling? Yes. Yeah, so, and you know, it's 
at the end of the day, your, your leaders are going to set the tone for the ethics that are tolerated in the organization, regardless of all of this law, right? So you, we can talk forever about work, what WorkSafe says, and we can talk forever about human rights and the importance of anti-discrimination and anti-bullying. But I always tell my leaders when I'm training them, the training that your staff get in relation to how to show up respectfully and how to make ethical decisions comes from how you show up, comes from the way in which you make decisions, the way in which you communicate those decisions, the way in which you conduct yourself, the way in which you send out emails and talk to people, uh, the way in which you care or don't care about the people around you. So if a leader is going to engage in the lowest common denominator of behavior, that is what the employees are going to see as what's expected of them. You know, I just think that, you know, I, I think about how many jobs I've had and how this, this, there's been so many changes in relation to this, but that world of double standards that many of us have lived through, that world of do as I say, uh, not as I do, um, is no longer the world that we live in. And employees are watching their leaders with vigilance saying, uh, are you going to walk the talk of what you say is important? Because if not, we don't believe in you and we will not believe in your message. It's just, that's the way it is now. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, can appreciate that. Tell us a little bit more about the respectful decision-making. Sometimes a new manager or leader, and as you sort of highlighted leaders that maybe haven't been equipped with the skills to fulfill this huge responsibility. They're confused about that difference about being liked and also and being respected by the staff. So, you know, tell us a little bit more about the manager that maybe says yes to all the staff requests, being the preferred leader, and then there might be another manager who's a bit more firm, and then it creates a different mm -hmm. dynamic. Mm -hmm. Can you share your thoughts on that? Absolutely. So when we talked about um, the, the, the hasty reactive leader, in contrast to the respectful leader, um, the other type of leadership style that really fits with, with, with your question, Lisa, is the avoidant leader. And this is someone who is looking at all of this, they're looking at their collective agreements, and they're looking at um, the legislation, and uh, they're looking at the diverse team that they're trying to manage, uh, some of whom to be honest, or can be quite intimidating, um, and can be quite uh, controlling. And, and so what, what, what they want to do, and what they have done, based on what I've seen is they hide, they, they, um, they, they are avoidant in two respects. One, um, sometimes the, the, the team can't find them, they don't know, you know, where, where is the leader? The leader's, leader's hiding because the leader doesn't want to have to make a decision. The leader doesn't want to have to uh, break the tie, resolve the conflicts, figure out what's going on. So the leader just kind of um, um, disappears. Or the leader comes in and you're right, is, is tries to say yes to everybody at the same time and, and just, you can't, right? So there's a difference between 
uh, being a, a friends with everybody and being friendly with everybody. And I think uh, the, the avoidant leader that wants to be friends with everybody um, will hide, will not be there. And in fact, I have to tell you that the culture of leadership avoidance that I see um, in many respects is more damaging to a respectful workplace culture than the top-down aggressive leadership, which was also and is also destructive. But if you're not there to lead and you're not there to support people and you're not there to help them resolve conflicts or hold them accountable, um, they are left to manage each other and that never works out well. And that usually contributes to an, an, an even more disrespectful culture. Does that go back to your hashtag not good? Not good, Lori. <laughs> not good. No, I, I just, I, I, I get it, right? I know why, you know, why sometimes we all kind of want to hide from some of the, uh, the really emotionally charged situations where there's a lot of pressure being put on our leaders. You know, I think a lot of employees think uh, a strong leader is their advocate and a strong leader is no one's advocate. They're everyone's advocate, right? They're an advocate for team health. They're an advocate for team harmony. They don't take sides. They aren't somebody's advocate. And if there's a perception that they are, they're going to lose credibility and respect with the rest of the team. So, so I, I, I understand. It's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult position for them to be in today. And especially around holding people accountable, which, Absolutely. you know, it's sort of the third responsibility that we talked about earlier. And you have this concept of dots of dysfunction that can lead to train wrecks. And then the venues for the train wrecks that are available to employees, you cover that in your book. Um, can you explain this a bit more for our leaders mm-hmm. our listeners, mm-hmm. sorry. <laughs> and our um, leaders too? Um- <laughs> Yes, yes. No, no, no. Absolutely. So, so the dots of dysfunction actually came up. Um, I was doing a labor arbitration years ago. Um, and, and I was, I was junior counsel, and we were all going for lunch. And what I said is, you know, it, it goes back to that land of missed conversations with the tabs. I said, you know, here we are at, at, in, in this arbitration. And the only people that look like they're enjoying themselves are the, the, the lawyers and the arbitrators, the union reps and the HR reps. So the, the actual party look so uncomfortable and so fear-based and want to be anywhere but in that room. And I said, you know, when we look at the uh, series of events that got us to this arbitration, I notice a lot of dots of dysfunction, like those tabs where you have um, an issue in tab one that if we would have had a conversation at that point of time, if we would have mandated a facilitated discussion, if we would have set clear expectations of how each of us are going to treat each other moving forward, we might have never have gotten to tab two. Um, And even if we'd gotten to tab two, maybe we'd have shut it down then. But um, when you take a dot, a dot is a a minor issue that you have with one of the people on your team. A dot might be a minor conflict between two people on the team. When you take a dot of dysfunction, for whatever reason, here's my recipe for you. If you're ever thinking, wow, how do I how do I make a train wreck in my life? I'm not I'm not busy enough. Take any mild dysfunction then add the passage of time and don't do anything constructive with it and you will get a train wreck. So, so that, that, that avoidance doesn't actually help you in the long run. It's like short-term gain for long-term pain. So um, it, it's just frustrating because the, the, the train wreck, which is what I'm often called in to navigate as a harassment investigator or as an arbitrator, the train wreck, and the reason why I call it train wreck is because there's just, there's so much uh, personal and professional and instant 
institutional carnage. Um, personal people get sick, people's, um, people lose their jobs, people's uh, professional reputations are damaged, um, the organization's reputation is damaged. There's, there's so much monetary and emotional um, and, and, and health-related cost associated with the train wreck. And the problem, the frustration for me is that I'd say 90% of it is avoidable if we deal with things at the dot. If we just take the time, make it a priority, and sit down with people in an early, in an informal, and never forget in a respectful manner to talk about things honestly with, with a problem-solving mindset. Once you're at a train wreck and you're in an arbitration, you have a positional mindset, an adversarial mindset, a win-lose, us-versus-them mindset. You have to. You're now in this formal, rigid framework. If you had dealt with it at the dot, you don't need to win or lose anything. You have a problem-solving mindset, you figure it out, and you don't get to tab two in the binder. That's the dealing with it at the dot sort of um, idea. So Marley, I really love that perspective. And I think it it sounds so simple, but we know it's not. What What guidance or advice would you give our listeners and to leaders? how do they have those conversations at the right time? Because I think similar to what you said, unfortunately, dot one leads to dot two because of the avoidance or they don't like conflict. Nobody likes conflict. How do we support them um, or they support themselves to be able to start building that accountability culture, start having courageous conversations. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I, you know, I always um, have said if we even took 25% of the labor relations budget, and you know, my labor relations clients are going to be, what are you doing? But if we had even taken 25% of the budget line for labor relations, and instead we allocated it to early and informal um, conflict resolution, uh, we, we, we might have been well ahead of the game. And so what I mean by that is uh, supporting people by, if they can't do it themselves, getting someone in to help facilitate a conversation. Um, bringing in uh, training on how to do early communication, how to have that 15-minute conversation. You know, and I do that training now. It's interesting how I started my training practice off with leaders and supervisors because, you know, that was my world as a lawyer. And then I gradually, you know, moved into a respectful workplace culture, but at the request of staff and leaders, I have I, I now do training on how to have a 15-minute conversation. And that's because they want it and they're looking for it. And it doesn't make the conversation easier, but I think if we have if we have training on how to set up a conversation so um, it's respectful of the other person, how to make sure it's happening at a mutually convenient time, how to make sure that it's happening in a neutral location, um, how to, uh, making sure there's no audience there. So making sure that that both people, you know, feel comfortable having an uncomfortable conversation. How do we make sure somebody isn't caught by surprise? Um, what do we do when there are power differentials? Who else might, might need to be in the room? How do we even describe our experience in a way that is honest but doesn't make the situation worse. So I talk about you know moving from an emotional conversation to um, to a conversation that is neutral and descriptive and allows the other person an opportunity to see what we experienced without feeling pressured to agree with that experience. So that and really a lot of this is is 
preparing for the conversation, learning how to be far better listeners than we are. You know, I have to sign up for my own course on a regular basis. It's, 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 it's hard, uh, especially when we're used to speaking, it's, it's hard developing the capacity to, ha to, to listen in our personal lives and professional lives when our, when our, um, worldview is being challenged, when our opinion is being challenged. And again, this we aren't born with this. We should be given an opportunity to develop these skills and build awareness and how to have these conversations properly. Because listen, if we have a 15-minute conversation without training and without tools and without knowledge, we could, we could actually facilitate the train wreck as opposed to avoid the train wreck. So yes, have to have the conversations, but they have to be done properly, right people in the room, right timing, right delivery. I think the, the risk today is the, the shift in how employees are dealing or coping or trying to uh, handle these train wrecks that they're involved in. And they're take, going through these different venues. In the past, you know, if you're in a union environment, you went through a grievance process, you turn to your union for support. Um, now, employees will often bypass the union. They're going directly to uh, outside agencies or uh, the government's um, resources available to them. You have human rights, you have privacy, you have uh, bullying and harassment under workers' compensation. So from your legal background, how have you seen this shift in how employees themselves or people involved in these conflicts are handling uh, the situation? So when I do these um, processes that are sort of more informal and more inquiry based called environmental scans, and these are where there's unexplained turnover, there's spikes in sick leave, there's, there's, there's something going on, but we're not sure what, and there's no crystallized complaints. In my environmental scans, regardless of what industry that I, I work in, regardless of uh, the the gender involved, the generation involved. In my environmental scan, um, this is what I hear. I hear that by the time somebody falls on the uh, bullying harassment end of the spectrum, um, the majority of the team who have been quite damaged by that person for a long period of time because of the avoidant culture and all of the other things we've talked about, by the time we get there, um, the employees, the majority of the employees are done. They are done with that employee, the person who now falls on that end of the spectrum, completely done. There's not the level of forgiveness or compassion that might have been there sort of in the bad day. Um, they're exhausted. Some of them are, are, are mentally or physically ill as a result of what this employee um, has done. But they're not just done with this employee. They are done with with the employer. They, uh, they say to me, you know, what's so upsetting is not just that this employee does this, but I'm in a workplace that tolerates it, that allows it, that turns a blind eye to it. And they're also done with their union. They say, you know, it feels to us as a team that the person who is causing the most harm and disruption gets the most support and attention and care. So many of your high performers, high producers, respectful, engaged staff feel like um, there's nowhere to turn internally, that all of the policies and procedures and collective agreements, all of that haven't really proven to be effective for them in providing a supportive and respectful workplace. So they start looking elsewhere. 
So the first phase of looking elsewhere uh, was what you said, Lori, they've started to go, they've, they, they've kind of left their union, they've left their HR departments, and they've started to go directly to human rights if it's um, a discrimination on the basis of a protected ground like gender or age or race. Um, since 2012, from that point on, they've been going directly to workers' compensation. Um, they, um, they've, they've been filing complaints if they can, where it's successful, particularly if they're excluded with courts. So now there's there's a, a whole body of law and constructive dismissal, which says if the environment is toxic and bullying and harassment for a manager, they can go to court and claim constructive dismissal um, and 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 seek um, monies and and damages. So where where people have lost faith and trust in their organizations or those who are supposed to represent them, they have gone to these external bodies. We now move to the current phase that we're in right now, where they have been look, watching closely Me Too, the Me Too movement. They've been watching um, very closely the Black Lives Matter. They've been watching the the, the various protests, whether it's um, on, on climate, it's on sexual harassment. Um, they're watching and watching and they're realizing that they can find their voice by going on social media, just like Lisa had mentioned in an earlier question, or going to find a journalist hungry for a story, um, or in some cases, even engaging in a protest using social media um, or even a physical protest. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you an example of this happening right now. I'm in Victoria. And it's been all over the news and there's been a restaurant here and the the that has reportedly and it, it seems to have been the case kept an employee on for a long period of time who was the narrative goes uh, known to have sexually harassed um, many uh, servers and patrons and the narrative out in Victoria is that the management knew that and did nothing about it that's always the the impetus to going and finding their voice elsewhere. I think when people are, when they feel heard and supported in their organization, you don't see them grasping uh, for something else because they, they, they feel like it's being taken seriously and there are remedies in place. In this particular restaurant, there was an entire um, Instagram account where um, past servers and others were commenting um, and then there was actual actually a protest outside the restaurant which with, with a number of former servers and people who supported them and there were a number of CTV interviews evening news um, people telling their stories about what it was like having to work there and not feeling supported so you know this isn't going anywhere this isn't, this isn't going to go away. Um, if we aren't going to do our jobs and we're not going to meet the expectations of our employees, they're going to find their support elsewhere, even if we're not happy with the way in which that, that ultimately unfolds. Yeah, I find that so interesting. And we definitely see that come up in media regularly, right up to, you know, the federal government of course, recently, right? So I think we do have really an obligation to be sure that we're providing the skills to leaders in organizations. So we're managing this early on and to the best of our ability. And it supports everybody and ultimately 
not only um, the staff and the employees, but the leaders as well and makes for a more productive workforce. Have you um, experienced, certainly with this shift with remote working, you know, are you seeing a difference or is it just similar, but, you know, it looks a little different because more employees are working remotely or... Well, so I, I think um, there's something that I'm seeing in relation to respectful workplaces that I call the COVID effect, um, and and it impacts leaders as well as their staff. And so what I'm I'm really seeing is that people are um, are are tired, are stressed, um, are on the verge of burnout if they're not already, including the leaders. Right? Um, we're all humans first, and our position second. And COVID is a human experience, and so we're all um, struggling through and suffering the impacts of that. It's it's not an employee problem to manage. I think it's a human problem to acknowledge. And so what I'm seeing is there are people who react to it differently. Um, some react uh, by not necessarily doing the work that's expected of them um, or the quality that we expect of them. And it leads others to have to kind of pick up the pieces remotely or otherwise, which then is causing some resentment and hostility amongst the team. Someone who's saying, you know, we're all suffering through this pandemic. Why are you not doing your fair share? Because now I'm dealing with the pandemic, plus I'm doing your work. Um, and when that, that inequity happens and we don't have a leader who inquires about it, who asks about it, who supports people remotely, um, that inequity will will become conflict will become a conflict um, that will carry into the physical work site if it doesn't get resolved remotely. So um, this the, the second part of this is that I when people do make mistakes or maybe they're not as productive or they sh as they should have been or or whatever there's another group of people who are on them so I'm, I'm calling it the sparkiness of COVID. So the, you know, you would think that this is a time where perhaps we're more forgiving of each other, perhaps we're more patient, but we all just don't have a lot of reserve. So um, I, I find that the computer courage that sometimes comes with remote learning can result in increased um, harassment. So uh, when we are writing an email and we're not face-to-face -face in a room, um, the tone might be a lot more abrasive and harsher than if we were in person. Um, if we're on a Zoom call, we can do the eye rolling and the flailing that perhaps we wouldn't do as quickly or as blatantly as if we were in a room. So there's a lot of um, nuances to this remote workplace that actually doesn't cause workplace conflict to go away. It manifests itself uh, differently and it can be so destructive. You know, I recently um, wrote a post and I said, you know, um, when you're working from home and you're suffering from workplace conflict, the conflict comes into your home. It's, you know, we, we can't, we can't uh, ignore that. And so leaders, I think have to have 15 minute calls with with one on ones um, and not about an agenda item, just about how people are doing. Um, are there conflicts? Are they perceiving conflicts? How can we support them in early resolution of those conflicts? Um, just just check in, just have a have a check in call to really just check in. And senior leaders really should be supporting their junior leaders and supervisors. Um, you know, it's not easy being a leader at this time, and then you add a, a pandemic on top of it, um, we, we really have to make sure there are supports in place for everyone in order to navigate through this. I think you could write a whole nother book, Marley, on just 
<laughs> respectful workplace and remote working and uh, and all of it and all of it i'm actually in the middle of writing a book uh, a workbook for everybody not just leaders and you know um, the title is walking on eggshells because um that is the most common statement that people make to me at a very emotional time in their conversations with me saying oh you know i'm just walking on eggshells with this person they're unpredictable or they're aggressive or they're shaming or and it, and it just wreaks havoc on people's uh, confidence professionally and then it and it really bleeds into their personal lives and so uh, you know i i i believe in this i'm going to continue writing because I just I, I have to I just think that this isn't a workplace issue this is a, a human issue that is happening in the workplace and um, it's really important that we take it seriously and do something about it well we're glad you're out there helping us guide us well, through this <laughs> we appreciate it really because well, we're all we're all we're all doing it right I think we're all playing a role doing it and I think you know I think um my adage is something is better than nothing. And so, you know, we can't be perfect. Who even knows what perfection is? It seems to be a matter of opinion nowadays and perspective, but we can just keep on trying. And I think that that's just gotta be the way, the way we continue moving forward. Same, same with leaders, just keep on trying. Just try, try your best in those circumstances, whatever that might be. And tomorrow's a new day. Thanks so much, Marley, for being with us here today. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. I, I, I loved it. I'll come back anytime. <laughs> oh, I, I could listen to you all all day, Marley. So thank you. I've just learned so much. And I, oh, I just, great. I love that you're working on a book called Walking on Eggshells because mm -hmm. it is a common term used. It is. Mm -hmm. uh, very much that we've heard throughout the years and probably daily. So it was very, very helpful. And and just, I loved how you just said, you know, I think it's stuff we know, but it's so sometimes hard to practice. Just take that 15 minutes, even if you don't nail the conversation, just to have the conversation and uh, try to check in and um, absolutely love the learning and can't thank you enough. No, oh, it was a pleasure. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and we'd also like to thank Andrew Skopenko, our team member and master of technical support for us. Well, we can't do this without Andrew. And uh, an additional thanks to Jeremy for the music that we have uh, for our podcast. That's great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> we look forward to chatting with you some more, Marley, again yes. in the future. That would be amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Till next time. Until next time.